The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you know that we have, in, in every single day, we have trials and struggles and concerns, and yet you, you've given us the opportunity now to think about the way you have chosen us. What an incredible blessing to be chosen by you. And so as we reflect on the text and think about how it affects our identity, help us to understand your word and to understand ourselves better in light of your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, who are you? The basic question we want to ask and answer through our time together is who are you? And that's a question of identity. Think in terms of roles. You are a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, a friend, a neighbor, a church member. Or think in terms of what you're doing during the week. You can be a stay-at-home mom, a homeschool teacher, a gardener, a taxicab driver, construction worker, architect, a lawyer, a counselor, a pastor, or a doctor. Or think in terms of counseling problems. You can be an addict, an adulterer, severely depressed, chronically angry, oppressive, or oppressed. Roles, jobs, counseling issues, they define our identity. But there's much, much more. Just think about some of the other things that have an influence on our identity, our experiences, our ethnicity, our family, our sexuality, our athleticism, our education, our geographical locations, each one contribute to our identity and their identity defining and their identity shaping. They contribute to a sense of who we are and what God intends for us to be. So, for example, I am a second generation Asian American who's married to Sarah, father of Zach, Lydia, Eden, Noel, and Abe, a soccer dad, a gamer, a city boy, a very amateur baker, and a lover of the East Coast. That's my identity in short. You know, it's in one sentence. Question is, who are you? Who has God made you to be? And how do all these things that I'm describing contribute to your identity? How would you answer that question? Who am I? Well, our task today is to consider how being chosen is fundamental to your identity. Chosen is a powerful word. If you're chosen, it's a distinctive bestowed privilege. You know, a high schooler gets acceptance to an elite college. Or a single woman meets a godly man and six months later he's on one knee asking her hand in marriage. Or a foster child is adopted and he's transferred out of the foster care system and into a loving family. Or an employee is picked for a promotion. But the greatest of all, you are chosen by God. The Lord tells us his plans to choose a people for himself. He doesn't keep it a mystery. He lays out his plans in scripture. A people chosen by God before creation, who then fell and, and rebelled against him going their own way, and then through Jesus Christ was reconciled back to him, and then in glory will be with him forever worshiping him for all of eternity. That is God's plan. And if you have trusted in Christ, you're a part of that plan. Here's what I want to do in our hour together. I want to do four things, and you'll see this on your outline. Number one, I want to talk about how not being chosen is defining of our identity. Number two, we want to think about how our identities get confused. Number three, we want to cover briefly about what we know in scripture about God's choices. And number four, finally, we wanna talk about how God's choice transforms our identity. And my prayer is that as we think about being chosen by God, that'll help us understand who we are in Christ. So number one, the problem of choosing. So a basic longing of the human spirit is to be chosen, but so many situations in life result in not being chosen. When we're forsaken, it's painful and it's a great loss. So Peter asked out Amanda, and she said no. And Peter was crushed. 
Jane desires marriage. She wants a husband, she wants a white picket fence, she wants a house, she wants children, and she wants a dog or two to boot. And yet, she's still waiting for a godly man to ask her out. In fact, she hasn't dated in years. And she's growing more and more fearful that she will end up lonely for the rest of her life. Connie waited for adoption. Her, Her parents died in a tragic accident. And she hated the orphanage that she was in, and she dreamed every day of having a family. It was a simple and good desire to want to have parents. Jonathan got passed up for a promotion. He had spent so many extra hours working to try and prove himself in his work environment, and yet another employee was picked over him, and he felt stuck in his job and felt hopeless about the upward mobility of his job. And then the day after her 15th birthday, Susan arrived at the gymnastics tryout ready to do her best. And she had spent hours upon hours on the balance beam hoping to make the team. And yet she ended up 11th on a 10-person team. And she went home devastated. We'll spend most of our time positively talking about how God's choice shapes your identity. But I just want to recognize at the very beginning that to not be chosen, to be forsaken, affects our self-understanding. To be forsaken can be devastating. It it can have a lasting effect on how we understand of ourselves and who we are. You know, how many single women have I sat with and talked to in our congregation? Now, our our average age is 29. We're dominated by 20 and 30-year-olds. We have half our congregation is single. So what we do often is we talk to people about who they date, what they're going to do with their life, and how to get married. And I feel like I spend half of my life doing that in our congregation. But how many times have I sat with a single woman in our church who, as the years pass the prospects seem to grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and they become all consumed with the idea of becoming married. In fact, the idolatry of marriage begins to suffocate their identity. Number two, the problem of identity. As we pursue identity, we run into a few problems. I want to think of two in particular briefly, idolatry and identity confusion. To be forsaken, to be left out, and to be overlooked, this can overtake your identity. So take the case of a single woman again longing for marriage. A good desire for a husband can morph into an idolatrous desire for a man to fulfill her dreams. Every good thing in this life has a proper weight, value, and importance. Uh, Think in terms of a price tag. God assigns a value to everything he has made. But what do our hearts do? They, they take that good desire and they morph it into an uh, outright demand and they set a price tag on a good thing that actually has a weight and importance that it never deserved. It replaces God on the throne and it replaces God in our hearts. Well, what should be primary in our identities? First and foremost should be God's perspective on our identities. But what happens to us? We get in trouble when we let things of this world, like experiences or abuse or ethnicity or family or education and jobs, become more important than God's perspective. We lose sight of our identity in Christ and we substitute different identities that allure us. So I was a freshman many years ago on college campus and I was in our student center and I was talking with a number of Indian students on our campus. And our our college had a a large number of Indian students amongst the student population. And so the the third largest organization in a college in Washington, D.C. was the Indian Student Association after, as you'd expect, the College Republican and the College Democrats, number one and number two. I'm talking to the student body president for the Indian Association, and at one point as we're talking about being Indian, he says to me, Being Indian is the most important thing in all of your life. Now, I was a really young believer at that point. But I knew enough at that point to say, that just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem right to me that he would say it's the most important thing in all of your life. Not partially important or somewhat important, the most important thing in all of your life. 
He identified being Indian as the primary, the core part of his identity. Well, you know, what do we do? We try on what seems like a right identity to wear. And in the end, we're disappointed and it wears off and we're worse off and not any better for it. Now, you've got to imagine right now with the way our culture is screaming about sexual identity that in in the years to come, we're going to have refugees of this whole culture. Because people will get tired when they begin to realize that their sexual identity is not the core of who they are. And so what should we do as a church and as Christians? We should be prepared to accept those refugees because they will have tried on the identities and it will not work. It will not give them the satisfaction that they want. Well, we know from the Bible that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is a way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. As Christians, Scripture should be primary in defining our understanding of ourselves. We want God and his word to be authoritative in defining who we are. Now, as Christians, identity confusion occurs when we let the things of this world define us more than God's word. Much of the dilemma in our experiences and our own personal interpretations in our life become authoritative in defining who we are. So here's our functional theology. What we know to be true about God's word matters less. What our family was like and how I was trained or what I do for work or how I feel, despite how irrational it might seem at times, or my difficult sexual past or all of these things come to define me more than God's word. That's my functional theology. There are days and moments where I let them become more primary in my identity. And some days they can temporarily rule the day. Well, your fundamental identity is that of a Christian, one who follows Christ. We're not American Christians or Chinese Christians or even Italian Californian Christians. No offense if that's you. Our unity with Christ is primary. You know, in a sports-crazed culture, a responsible college student knows that student life and being uh, an athlete actually should be secondary. Uh, She can be confused when she actually does well, especially in sports, and she gets all kinds of accolades thinking she's first and foremost an athlete and not really care about school. But when she fails out of a class, she'll realize what should be first. She's a student first, not an athlete first. Same for us. Christ needs to be primary. Christ has to be central in our identities. So we're going to focus on this hour. God chose you. And that's what really matters for our identities, that he chose you. That's going to be pivotal for our self-understanding. So number three, what do we know from Scripture about God's choices? A couple of things you see there. First, God elects. The, the Lord is not indifferent. He doesn't st- struggle to make up his mind. This is how he works. The Almighty chooses. God is free to choose. It's a basic part of his nature. God chose Jacob and not Esau. With Israel, he elects some to salvation while others were hardened. The Lord chose the foolish and the weak to shame the wise and the powerful. And the God chose you before the creation of the world, before the Lord's word spilled forth, before he made light, the expanse of the waters, the dry land, the vegetation, the plants, the fruit of the trees, the animals, the birds, the fish of the sea. He chose you. The ordering of things shows God's priorities. Have you ever thought about that? You matter to God. In eternity past, he chose you before his great acts of creation. And in love, God predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Now, predestined is a big word, but it simply means God chose you beforehand to be saved. He welcomes you into his family. You know, a child trapped in a foster care system longs for parents. He he wants to be a part of a family. You were once a spiritual orphan going about life on your own way. You think of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian on his journey. 
and the burden he had on his back, and, and the guilt and the shame and being forsaken by his fellow man. But the Lord chose you. He made you his own. He conceived you before, he, he chose you before you were conceived. He chose you before you were conceived. Let's meditate on that for a moment. Before you even existed, God chose you. Now, now that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary because, you know, if you went to adoptive parents and said to them, before you actually adopt, before your child is even born, I want you to go ahead and choose them. Now, they would think you're crazy. Who actually does that? And yet, it's not so far-fetched with God. He chose you before you were born. He chose you in eternity past. And God foreknew and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. How do you know someone even before they exist? Well, we can't, but God can. You know, you know, foreknowledge is knowing you before you were born, but foreknowledge is not just simply knowing something about you beforehand. Foreknowledge is knowing you and God setting his love on you. So knowledge and love are intertwined. And the Lord's goal is to make you more like his son. A piece of clay sits on a pottery wheel, a solitary clump of nothing. And like this clay, you are shaped and molded into the image of Christ. This is the great goal of Christianity. This is the great goal of the Christian life, to grow in greater maturity in Christ. And with all of our imperfections, we'll be a dim reflection of Christ, but in glory, we will no longer be bound by sin. In the end, there will be no doubt. There will be absolutely no doubt. We will be like him in the fullness of our salvation will come to full fruition and we will be like him as we see him face to face. And then God chose you not because of you but because of his purposes, love and grace. Now in Israel's case, it would have been tempting to think they were chosen because they were the larger than any other nation that was out there and therefore God chose them. But God chose them because of his love. Look at Deuteronomy 7 there on your handout. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And why did the Lord choose Jacob over Esau? So God's purposes could be made known. You see there, Romans 9. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes to choose might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, their mother was told, the older will serve the younger. And so also is the case with us. God chooses us and he makes known his purposes of his will. You see there, Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. And then verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We also know God chose us by his grace, Romans 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Well, number four. God transforms our identity. I want to make seven subpoints, seven subpoints about how God's choice transforms our identity. Number one, in choosing us, choosing us, God Himself chooses our identity. God choosing us is our identity. It's one and the same thing. God choosing us is one of the typical identity markers used by the biblical author. So, Romans chapter 16, verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In being a Christian, you, this is your fundamental identity. Being chosen by God is the first in a long line of identity markers that will define the core of who you are. In our culture that right now screams, Sexual identity matters more than anything else 
God's choice of you matters abundantly more. And as our culture continues to scream that sexual identity should matter and be the core of who you are, we know from Scripture that the core of who you are is a Christian, and the first in that long line of who you are is being chosen by God. Number two, you see there, there is a deeper choice that changes who you are. Uh, Or another way to refer to this point, there's a deeper choice that's rooted in the gospel. So uh, often on on the playground, you can imagine me as a a, a tiny little guy, so they don't make Indian men big. (laughs) They make them small and scrawny. This seems to be God's design. So you can imagine me as a small, scrawny kid on the playground, and you, you, you can think of those situations where, you know, two boys are picked, and they're picking the team. And I was always close to last. And you have those awkward moments as, you know, they pick the first kid and the second kid and the third kid. And halfway down the line, you're thinking, oh, I don't want to be last. I don't want to be that kid that's chosen last. And when you're chosen second to last, you think, oh, good, I'm not the last guy on the team. Well, a kid selected on the playground for a kickball game is a choice. But in eternity past, in, in, in the mind and purpose of God, you were chosen for salvation in Christ. Both are choices, but one of them has a richer and deeper meaning to it. It's what Piper calls the deeper choosing. Now, often human choices are based on human merit. You know, when a, when a high school student is admitted to a good college, it's based on his hard work throughout his years of school. Or a hard-working employee gets a promotion. It's usually based on his hard work and his talents and his gifts. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I earned this. I worked for this. Now you see how the world likes to shape our identity. It roots my identity and my self-understanding in my goodness, my achievements, and my efforts. That's how the world and our culture builds identity. It's all around me. It's what I do. It's my efforts. It's how I think. It's what I achieve. And you know, what do we think about that as Christians? Well, that's prideful and self-aggrandizing. To to build my identity fundamentally around my own merits or my own efforts is, is foolhardy. Rather, we want to build our identities around who we are in light of Christ. This is how the gospel redefines our identity. This is how the gospel works. God chooses you in eternity past to be adopted as sons and daughters. So God chooses you in and through Christ. Remember Ephesians 1. He chose us in him. In love he predestined us through Jesus Christ. And the world rejected Jesus, but the Father sent his Son to rescue us. Jesus is the living stone and the cornerstone who is both chosen and precious. 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's verse 4, and then verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is the center of the gospel. It is on his life, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, that our lives are redefined. As Christians, our identity are not grounded in our human efforts, but in Christ and in Christ alone. And this should make us profoundly grateful. You know, what efforts or merits do any of us have that would impress God? What, in, in, what do we do that actually attracts his attention? How do we actually move him to love us? You know, if we think this way, we are foolhardy. As Jonathan Edwards famously wrote, we contribute nothing to our salvation than the sin which made it necessary. Here's how the Father and Son work together. God, the Father, chooses you in eternity past, and he gives you over to the Son. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then chapter 17. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
Now, race relations in America are at a bad place right now, but the good news of the gospel is that with salvation in Christ, God puts us in a different race. So Peter says, you are a chosen race, 1 Peter chapter 2. So it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, you and I are chosen and set apart for God as a supernatural race. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the good news. God choosing us in eternity past to be his own. Then God sending his son, the chosen one. And then God giving us to the son to be redeemed. And then the son dies for us so that we could be a chosen race. And then one day that chosen race will stand before God in glory. And the only thing that will matter that we will worship him for all of eternity. Because there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more crying, no more difficulties, no more disease. Nothing else will actually matter. That's the gospel. And you see how God's choice works from beginning to end in choosing you. What good news that is for us. Now, any theology, any free will theology that actually roots the core of our salvation in us choosing God is actually a contradiction to the very nature of this gospel. Through the law, sin has rendered us unable and unwilling to choose Jesus. He must choose us. Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15, verse 16. And we didn't deserve this or we didn't earn this. We couldn't work for this, and there is no goodness in us that makes us worthy of God's choosing. God's choice is rooted in his goodness and his gospel, not in my goodness and my merit. Our identity is rooted in God and the gospel and not in us. Number three, God's choice means you belong to him. Now, Peter was writing to Christians scattered and suffering through the Roman Empire. And what did they need to hear among all things during their hardships and persecutions? 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Now, to be a possession in our society does not have a good connotation. You know, I own a house, I own a car, I own two pairs of jeans. We own things, but we don't own people. Actually, to own a person is disgusting and it's actually dreadful. You know, I'm a pimp and I own a prostitute. Or I'm, I'm a, a master and I have an indentured slave. To be chosen by God, to be a chosen race, means we are owned by God. You are a chosen race a people for his own possession. You hear that? To be owned by God is the greatest thing you could ever experience. To belong to him, you are his own. You're a child of the Father, a sister or brother of Christ, and you're a recipient of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. So we treasure and actually welcome being God's possession. Now you put this verse in context of 1 Peter. When the trials come, it's actually comforting to know we're owned by God and not our persecutors. It's comforting to know that God is the one who has our life in his hands. And not all those who come against us. And what does that do for us? It actually helps us to bear up under the suffering that we're facing. Number four. We can know we are chosen because our lives evidence God's work. We can know we belong to God. Here's what Paul says in Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He says we can know he has chosen you. But how? And this is where the word because is important. So here are the reasons, two of them. The first reason you see there in verse 5. Because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the gospel was not just proclaimed in word, but in power. So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work within you. And the gospel was not just proclaimed in word, but in the Holy Spirit. 
So you see the Spirit actually working in the lives of all those around you, bringing people to joy and to comfort and changing their lives. And the gospel is not proclaimed in word only, but in full conviction. We know that the Spirit comes and actually brings conviction in people's hearts because we see their lives change. The second reason you see there in verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the, jo- with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We want evidence that someone has been chosen by God. Well, you want evidence that someone's been chosen by God? Well, watch someone go through hardships and see that they not only persevere through the hardship, but of all things, they have joy in suffering. Who receives the word with joy while they're suffering? Either you're crazy or you're a Christian. Now, you know, on Tuesday, I had the privilege of being at Dr. Paulson's funeral and the memorial service. And as staff and the trustees were tracking with his sickness and with him since October and the diagnosis. We've been getting updates and having phone calls. In April, we had dinner with him. And the remarkable thing is that David, in in, in the time frame around April to March, made the decision to just stop chemotherapy. He decided that so many people, as he told us, in the last months of their life, actually sabotaged their last few months to sickness and trying to get just a few more days or hours or weeks out of their life to the chemotherapy and all the other treatments. And he said he just didn't want to make that choice. He, he wanted to live with a quality of life in the last few months and be able to live with his family with a joy in the Lord. So, you know, I try not to tear up. To see him go to the Lord is a joyous thing. But to see him live with joy and to see him find joy in the Lord and to see him sustained by Scripture in his last days, that's a way to face death. At the end of the funeral service, Janie Clark, the chief of staff, actually, instead of doing a traditional benediction, actually read the last few chapters of what will be his final book. His first book, Power Encounters, was on spiritual warfare, and it went out of print a number of years ago. And David's desire was for many years to see a revised version of that book come back into print. And so he's actually been working on it for the last year to year and a half. And unfortunately, with the sickness, it became harder and harder to work on the book. So Barbara Giuliani, the editor at New Growth, actually has been interviewing him for a number of months in order to get the book done. And then Ed Welch edited it, and Laura Whitman did the final work on the writing. But the last chapter that they've added is his facing his own death. It's called The Last Battle. And you hear David meditating on Scripture and trusting the Lord and finding his final joy in the Lord. You know, who finds joy in suffering? Who really finds joy in suffering? Christians do. Because we know this, this world is not our final place. We know that there is a better place. We know that we don't have to face the futility of this life anymore. We know that David right now is in a better place. So what do I want for my own life? When I face that final hour, I want to find joy in my suffering. I don't want to be sabotaged by all kinds of other things. I want to see the Lord and know the Lord until that final hour know that I am going to find greatest joy actually in him. Really, you know, being crazy or a Christian is the only two options in having joy in our suffering. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and it takes the Spirit to bring joy while someone's suffering. Otherwise, it just doesn't actually make sense. Well, we look at these two reasons and what do we find? Well, God is sovereign and loving his choices of us as a source of endless comfort and assurance to us, especially for the feeble-hearted. We can actually know we are chosen. 
faith, conviction, obedience, joy, evidence that the Lord has actually worked in our lives and chosen us. Number five, God's choice gives purpose to our identity. We see two of the purposes there, fruit and praise. God chooses us with purposes in mind. God's purposes gives us uh, shape to our identity. So he chooses us to bear fruit, to bear fruit that will last. John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You were made to bear fruit. Now, you know, imagine as I went to my front yard and I planted an apple tree and over the years I'm excited to see the apples come. You know, I love fruit, and our family loves fruit. So I I would actually wait on the front yard for those delicious apples to arrive. I'm that eager for the fruit to arrive. But imagine that my tree produces no apples. None. You know, at best, I've got scrawny apples hanging from the tree. Well, doesn't that tell me a bit about the quality of the tree? You know, what would I do the next day? I would chop it down and plant a new tree. Well, I can tell a lot about who you are and who you are in Christ by the fruit that you bear. Your your confession alone doesn't convince me. And we know this as counselors. You know, we know this as pastors. We know as those who actually work with people who are in struggles. How many times do they make a promise, I will get this right, or "I, I know how to do this, or God's word, this sounds so good, and yet I don't see the fruit that follows. How many husbands have I helped and they've gone home and they haven't done a single thing that I've asked them to do? They haven't read their Bibles and worst of all, they haven't listened to their wives. And what do I do after weeks or months or years? I begin to think, why am I spending this time with you? The thoughts that every counselor has that they wish they could articulate in the middle of a session. You know, you know what you can see? You can see over the course of time the lack of fruit they, they, they do not bear in their lives. You can see plenty of evidence about the state of their heart. You know, and I'm not talking about one bad day or one bad season. I'm talking about a person's life who consistently does not bear fruit over the course of weeks and months and years. You know, as a counselor, it's taken, it's taken a lot to get through my stupid thick skull The fact that if I'm into years of counseling someone I'm not bearing fruit, I really should probably stop this. I wonder if you've been in that same position. I can tell a lot about who you are by the fruit that you bear. Your confession alone doesn't convince me. Fruitfulness is a marker of someone who's following Christ. But we distinguish this from people who just simply get busy. Now, I come from Washington, D.C., I'm surrounded by type A people. You know, the kind of people who come to Washington are the people who want to conquer the world. They're not the guys who, and gals who got Fs or Ds. They're the people who got straight A's and think, I'm going to defeat this nation. Pray for me, because that is my congregation. Here's the danger of fruitfulness. People can wrap up their identity around what they can get done rather than Jesus himself. It's very possible to fill up your schedule but not have a genuine heart for Christ. You know how good we are at being rule followers but not Christ lovers. How how easy it is to actually follow all these things and check everything off the list. So I have to be really careful as I'm helping someone in my congregation because they'll often say, okay, what do I do next? And how often I have to say, no, really what I want you to do is just rest in Christ. And you know, that drives a type A person berserk. No, 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 that can't be possible. How many times do I have to do my quiet time this week? No, rest in Christ. That's all. Where does that say that in the Bible? It can't be possible. No, 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 no. We, we, we want people to be Christ lovers first. Christ has called us to follow him first. And everything else should be secondary. Here's God's other purpose. You see it there. He chose us so we could, <coughs> we could praise him. To praise is to exalt above all else. We know this from Ephesians 1. 
In love, he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We're chosen to praise God's grace and his glory. It is by grace you were saved, Ephesians chapter 2. And we do everything to the glory of God. Now, this is the reason you exist. Now, I have a couple of times during the week, which are really my favorite times of the week. Now, I'll tell it to you, but you can't tell anybody else. (laughs) You know, one of those times is my quiet time in the morning. I get up before our children get up because, you know, if I, if I don't do my quiet time before they get up, then it's not going to happen. <laughs> but my other favorite time in the Word is actually on Sundays. You know, our, our sanctuary is actually built almost like a circle. And one of the beauties of that is actually when you're singing, you're actually singing to each other as a congregation. <laughs> I love it. And I really don't want to be any place else in regards to a sanctuary. Because there's a beauty of hearing all of those voices. And, you know, I, I, a couple of weeks ago at church, we missed sitting in the fourth or fifth row. You know, Baptists, they like to actually have their row. <laughs> so we ended up in the back of the sanctuary, and it was a tragedy because I couldn't hear all the voices, all the chorus of voices singing loud praises to the Lord. You know, when I'm not doing well, what lifts my spirits? I want to be right in the middle of the singing. I want to hear the praises of God's people because that's what lifts my soul to the Lord. That's what sets my eyes on heaven. And you know what I can do? I can close my eyes and in that moment, I can picture being in glory when all there is is not the loud entertainment or the huge screens. No offense to what's behind me. But all there is, is the Lord God Almighty in front of me and the chorus of the thousands upon thousands from all of those centuries singing praise to the Lord. That is one of my favorite moments in church. Close my eyes and hear the praises of God's people to him. That's why you exist. You know, that's what you're made for. Now, now tell me that isn't identity shaping. Tell me that's not fundamental to who you are. Tell me that, 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 that one moment when you're actually hearing the praises and all those troubles this world are gone and your heart is actually not divided but focused on the Lord. Tell me that isn't sweet. That's what you're meant for. That is our identity. That is the second thing that the Lord lists here for us. We're we're meant to give praise to God and give honor to him and to his holy name. You know, giving praise to God is one of those gospel measures that counters our natural selfishness and me-centeredness and it constantly recalibrates us towards God. That's why I need to be in church every Sunday. Because every week I need to be recalibrated for the week that comes ahead. You know, I'm a pastor, but I need it just as much as every person who's in my church. Who am I is only fully known if it is set in the light of the God of the universe. And to figure out who I am in isolation of God is a lie to myself. Number six. God's chosen ones find comfort in his justice many of whom we work with will feel overwhelming shame and condemnation. So the last time I sat with an adulterer and was talking through her life in the very first session, I asked her to look up at me, and she said she couldn't. The entire first session, she looked down at the carpet because she was deeply ashamed. Well, our hearts may condemn us, 1 John chapter 3, yet this is what the Apostle Paul tells us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Well, what do we see here? Paul tells us, look at there, verse 31, God is for us, so no one can stand against us. It's an undeniable fact. And then you see there, verse 32, God gave us his son, so how will he not graciously give us all things? You know, that's Paul's argument from greater to lesser. And then verse 33, what does Paul state? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones? The answer, what do you see there? No one. It is God who justifies. You know, here's what you want to picture. What you want to picture is a lawyer who is bringing a charge against God's elect. And no charge, according to this verse, can be brought against you. No lawyer can actually haul you into court. Paul tells us that the only tribunal that will actually matter is when we face God Almighty, the King of the universe. God will surely justify his own, and he will declare them righteous. But as believers, we wrestle with doubts, and we might wonder if actually, will we prevail? Will the condemnation of our hearts and the charge of the accuser, Satan, actually ruin us. But there should actually be no doubt. No doubt. Because God is both just and the justifier that he will actually prevail. How hopeful that is for us and for the people we counsel. The only judgment that matters is our judgment before the Lord. And then you see there, verse 34, Paul's last question. Who is to condemn? Now remember what Jesus said, John chapter 12. I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So will Christ condemn us? No, he is the one who died from us. So Christ is for us. Now how comforting is that? It, 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 it is comforting to know that we can put our lives in the hands of God, who is the judge of the entire universe. And you see how freeing that is for us. Christ is for us, so the condemnation can no longer rule in our lives or ruin us or, most importantly, define us. And then number seven, God's choice sets a trajectory for everything else in the Christian life. Now, being chosen and glory are in an unbreakable chain. When God chose us, he does not make plans wondering Actually, if it will work out. This is a God-ordained, guaranteed success. So you see there, Romans chapter 8. And those whom he has predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The call here is the effectual call. Those whom God predestines, he will regenerate to be his own. Justification is not merely forgiveness, but this is God's declaration that he gives us Christ's righteousness to be our own. It's, it, it is entirely identity-shaping to be justified. We're, we're wrapped in that identity that God has declared us with Christ's righteousness to be ours. And glorification is striking here because it's the aorist tense, which simply means it's a past action that's already accomplished. It's as if Paul were saying, this is so certain it will actually happen. What God started in eternity past, he will finish in glory. So, Pastor J.D. Greer has said, what God starts, he always finishes. He always finishes. Now, for those of us who counsel and help others, this is a call to action. You know, God's sheep need our help. They need us to help them with their daily lives, but they need us to help them get to glory. You know, what, what do I want more than anything else? The people I'm helping, I, I, I want to actually one day be standing beside them in glory. My goal is not to just get them through this next day or through this next week or even through this season. My goal is to get them to glory and for us to be there 
together. So what does the Apostle Paul say to us? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the chosen ones, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Just like Paul, we are a means to help God's chosen ones come to salvation in Christ and then one day get to glory. And then in the end, when Christ comes back, the chosen ones will stand with Christ as he reigns forever. Revelation chapter 17. They will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we should conclude. So if you stand here today as a Christian, you should rejoice and celebrate and savor the fact that God chose you in eternity past. You hear the richness of all these texts that describe what God did for us in Christ. You know, what, I want, what do I want you to do? I want you to revel in the fact that if you were chosen in God, that changes who you are and that changes your identity. Glory be to God that he chose us in eternity past. This is the glorious truth, the fact that God chose us, and because he chose it, it changes who we are and how we are to live. When he chose us, he chose our identity. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good, and we know that your goodness comes to us through Christ. So thank you, Lord, for those of, who, those of us who have repented and trusted in Christ. We, we, we know that you chose us in eternity past in Christ, and now we can rejoice in that fact. And we pray it in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.